Welcome to the Deaf Studies Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the breadth and diversity of voices in and around the academic field of deaf studies. With your hosts, Dr. Renske Visser and Dr. Bethan Michael Fox. Let's get started. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, Beth, and welcome to our very special Christmas bonus episode. Beth, how are you? Oh, I'm very excited for this episode. <laughs> and I am feeling the complicated straightness that is December. It is howling outside. There is rain, there is wind, there is cold. I'm just about keeping warm, but yeah, it's a uh, it's tough times keeping warm in the UK today. I, I imagine it's similar for other people and possibly for you also in Finland, but I don't think you have quite the energy crisis we're experiencing here. Uh, we do, but like, this is very boring fact, but like my heating is included in the rent. So for people like me, it's fine. But I know people with their own houses that are really yeah, putting on extra sweaters and extra layers because, yeah, it, a lot of our energy used to come from our neighbours and that pipe has literally been closed down. So, For anyone whose geography is not amazing, that would be Russia, Finland <laughs> and the border each other. I know my geography is not always the best, so, yeah. And you send me photographs of this absolutely stunning snow. It's like you're constantly living in a, in a Christmas card. It's amazing at the moment because I, I promised you... A, a fun snow fact at the moment there's more snow in Helsinki than there is in Lapland so if you are traveling to the north of Finland for your Christmas holidays there might not be as much snow as if you would have gone down south which is very weird because you would think the north would have more but it's all down here and also last week it was just Monday Tuesday completely mayhem because typically Finland can deal with the snow but the amount of buses that got stuck and traffic that was just derailed because I think in about a day it was like 40 to 50 centimeters of snow so the UK would have shut down completely shut down we're like everything is <laughs> as normal everything is fine so to know that things did shut down a bit it must have been an intense snowy period yeah luckily I didn't have to go outside that much but the times I did yeah so I was annoyed that my trains were delayed and that just shows how rare that is for for that to happen. <laughs> I was wondering, Beth, do you have any like special Christmas traditions that you do annually? Mm, an interesting question. Yeah, well, we've developed quite a few as a little family. I like to take my daughter ice skating, Eden Project, which is very nice. And we go to lots of National Trust properties to to see the big FC Father Christmas for a little story time and all of that sort of thing my christmas traditions mainly revolve around eating really small foods but in large quantities so i like like mini things basically anything that is like small party food but i eat a lot of it so i like to make my own i like to cook all year round yeah. so i really add the festival it's very much for the children christmas in our house i think I quite like using it as a nice quiet time to get caught up on some reading when the email slows. But I've still got a bit of marking to do. I'm not quite there yet. How about you? What are your Christmas trads? So for me, it's mainly food. <laughs> so in, in, in the Netherlands, um, we do say Nicholas. So 
I've never had Christmas presents. I've always received presents during St. Nicholas, so on the 5th of December. It's mainly going to family and having shitloads of food and drink and just be merry. And St. Nicholas doesn't come into your bedroom to watch. And I was appalled to discover that the story is that he might come into your room to look at you. So I would be terrified of Santa Claus if he would come into my room to watch. So there's, I feel, different stories in different places that I think it's for the children. But also, why do we scare the children with our made-up stories? <laughs> in where I grew up in, in, in Wales, it was uh, Sean Conn, which uh, people say sounds a bit like Sean Connery. And I like the idea that Sean Connery is going to come down the chimney. You know? I say Santa Claus because Sinterklaas is the original Santa Claus. So it's the derivative of... Also, my, my second name, Glasje. Glasje is Claus, basically. Mm. So I'm basically Father Christmas as well. But linked to that for me is also that Christmas is a bit of a sad period as well. Because when I was... I think I was just turned nine on Christmas Eve. My uncle died and he was, uh, my aunt and uncle had a big age gap. So he was in his seventies. It's for me, this memory that as a family, we were watching the very Christmassy movie Ghost. <laughs> and then we got the phone call and my dad went to hospital and he died that Eve. So it's, that is from a very young age. It's also a bit of sadness. And then um, we used to, celebrate Boxing Day at my father's cousin's house. We call it Second Christmas Day for some reason. And uh, she died of breast cancer when I was 16. And I also, I've always said, and I think our entire family said, like when she died, also a little bit of Christmas died. So it's 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 a lot of merriment and getting together. And there's several people I only really see for Christmas, but there's also this element of the people who are no longer there and no longer with us. Yeah. Any kind of family-oriented or, or what's perceived to be or positioned as being a very sort of family-oriented time, of course, adds a, a level of awareness of who's not there and of who you might wish to be there uh, on top of those anniversaries for you that, that are always so difficult as well. I think I find the whole month quite um, wonderful at times, but also quite a an anxious time. I find the the... There can be a lot of pressure around it and and how to sort of ensure that things go as smoothly as they can but also that sort of because I work on an academic year I think we often sort of reflect around the end of an academic year and the start of an academic year and then I'm like hey I'm, I've done reflecting for this year I don't I don't want another reflective period because <laughs> I'm living on two cycles of calendars the annual and the the academic as well sometimes I just yeah mm. I, I quite like January as a whole I know a lot of people don't like so much, but uh, we'll see. We'll see how it all goes this year. I'm practicing everything I learned from our last episode with Mandy Gosling, and I'm feeling all my feelings, and I'm letting them be felt, and just, yeah, going with the flow of it as much as I can. So I hope that this is an episode that brings some comfort to anyone who finds Christmas and this time of year a bit challenging. Um, do you think there's there's a specific reason we've included this one now, isn't there? Yeah, so our guest today, Selena Gordon, has spoken about how Christmas is also quite a difficult period for her and it's it's not always fun. And I think 
I'm not just putting words into her mouth as well. I think it's not just the time period, but I think it's also just the darkness and the, the, the absence of light. But it's also from Christmas onwards, from the 21st onwards, the days will get longer again. So hopefully people who are listening can get something out of it and know that the light will return. Wonderful. So Selena Godden, FRSL, is an award-winning author, memoirist, essayist, poet and broadcaster of Jamaican heritage based in London. In 2021, Canongate Gate published her highly acclaimed debut novel, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death. It's the winner of the Indie Book Award for Fiction and the People's Prize Book Award 2022 and was shortlisted for the Gordon Byrne Prize, the Nibbies, British Book Awards Book of the Year Fiction Debut, the Bad Form Book of the Year shortlist and it featured in the Guardian Book of the Year list 2021. Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death has been described by the publisher as an intoxicating and life-affirming book, and in the bookseller as original, exuberant, truly one of a kind. Film and TV rights to this work have been taken by Idris Elba and Green Door Pictures. Commenting on the deal, Idris Elba said, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death feels like an instant classic, with an intoxicating story that crosses time and continents. I was immediately drawn to Selena's writing and I'm humbled and excited to have the opportunity to bring her brilliant words to life on screen. Selena Godden's work has been widely anthologised and broadcast on BBC Radio and TV. Her essay Shade was published in groundbreaking and award-winning anthology The Good Immigrants by Unbound. A short story Blue Cornflowers was shortlisted for the Fourth Estate and Guardian Short Story Prize 2016. She has had several volumes of poetry published, including Under the Pier, Fishing in the Aftermath, Pessimism is for Lightweights, 13 Pieces of Courage and Resistance, and also a literary childhood memoir, Springfield Road. She has produced four studio albums to date. Her solo poetry album, Live Wire, was shortlisted for the Ted Hughes Prize 2017. The Royal Society of Literature elected Godden as fellow FRSL in November 2020, she was inducted in July 2022. Her poem, Pessimism is for Lightweights, is on permanent display at the People's History Museum in Manchester. So, Selena Gollin, you're a poet, author, activist and broadcaster. Could you please tell us a bit about your background and how death fits into your work? Hmm, <laughs> how death fits into my work? I think I've always had... A, quite a relationship, if you like, with death from um, from being quite empathic as a young child and um, and sort of losing my father when I was a child and some big, big sort of moments in my life. Um, but I think even like today, I, I'm noticing the date and it's August and, and it's kind of like some other kind of death kind of happens around now, like the, the death of summer and the beginning of and I always get a bit melancholy around this time as we sort of move. Once we get into the thick of it, in the middle of autumn, I love it. But it's that little bit when you're saying goodbye and, and it's just that letting go of summer and, and going into going into autumn. I think as well, because in the summer I'm very extrovert and doing lots of festivals, lots of events, seeing lots of people. And then in the autumn and winter, I'm a, I go back into introvert mode and... Um, it's easier to go from, um, in a way, sometimes it's easier to go from spring into summer, from, you know, from sleeping into awake, than it is to go from being lively in people and festivals it back into the bear in the cave and writing mode. And 
I'm excited about my new projects and things to do, but there is a little bit of uh, sort of putting the monster back in the box, that kind of feeling like shutting the lid on something. I think writing about death, thinking about death, thinking about my own funeral. I mean, <laughs> if you haven't planned your own funeral, if you don't sometimes imagine your own funeral, I, I think all the people I love, all my friends, you kind of have these conversations that other people might find alarming. But I think it's healthy to imagine these things or picture these things. And it changes all the time, by the way, uh, the kind of funeral I, I want. Um, I've recently been reading What Remains by Rue Callender, um, which is coming out in September. And Rue makes a very fine point that perhaps your funeral isn't for you, isn't what you should plan. It's for the people left behind and something they should plan. So that's making me change all that as well about how I think about that. I think writing uh, writing this book, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death, is something I've been writing all my life. It, some of the, the, the themes and things that I'm talking about, some of the fears that I'm talking about are definitely something that's that's run through my work um, since, you know, since I started writing as a little girl, I think. Yeah. I've also, a few years ago, uh, there's always Dying Matters Week in May and at the University of Bath there were uh, where I did my PhD, they organized a lot of things. And one of the things they organized was a funeral workshop. So I, so I also spent like two hours thinking about my own funeral. And then at the end, uh, the woman who organized the workshops, also a dear friend of mine, she then at some point pointed out that probably the people you are designing this funeral for at this point in time might well be dead by the time you're actually <laughs> like holding this funeral that so that for me was this whole eye-opener like yeah who am I doing this for and also I'm assuming like right now both my parents are still alive and my siblings so yeah it's very interesting to every now and again think about your own death and yeah the celebration or yeah the funeral around that yeah yeah I think it's healthy I think it's healthy to sort of be being well for want of a better word of putting it but friends with it to be, yeah, sort of have that. I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's philosophical. But I've, I think I've always been drawn to the way death is portrayed in art and in poetry and in songs, in music and in theatre. And, and I've, I've, I've always been very drawn to that. I like sad songs. <laughs> I like, I like, you know, themes of loss and, and, and these things have run through my, all of my work. So no surprises there that I ended up writing a book like this. So at what point in time did you sit down and start to actually, I'm now holding it up for you, uh, sit down and started writing Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death. What was the first inspiration and when did you really begin with this work? It's been such a long process. Like I've been writing this book like for about a day. I mean, the whole thing is about a decade's work. I think I must have started, I've got, an, I just found a notebook from 2011 and there's just pages of handwritten notes scribbling on about the desk and, and death and this Tilly Tuppence character. And, and so I think I've been sort of working on these ideas for a really long time. Um, I didn't have an agent or a publisher, so I wasn't writing it for any deadline or for money or for anyone. And then as I was writing it, different stories in the news, like real-time injustice and and crimes and, and, and those sort of stories were coming into the work as well as, um, you know, personal 
loss, um, like in a, a lot, a bulk of the writing happened around 2015, 2016, 20, around there. And that's where you've got things like Grenfell Tower and the death of Prince and the death of Bowie. And, and these sort of stories were like whirling around, swirling around in my sort of subconscious and in my dreams. And, and so, yeah, it was a long ride and I would just sort of get up in the morning, four in the morning and watch the sunrise and just work on this sort of secret project, um, sort of imagining conversations with death and what she would say to us. In the book, death is kind of in protest and, and she's kind of angry and she's kind of, you know, she's not here for the death of death and, and, and sort of asks us, you know, if we carry on like this, everything will be gone. And even even death won't be here, um, and this kind of idea that she's here to fight for it and fight for us to sort of find more balance and justice and voice and and that she sort of walks in the steps or in the footsteps of in the guise, if you want, of of, of people that we walk past in society or people that we don't value, invisible people, unheard people, um, someone homeless in a doorway or an old lady on the bus that we're ignoring. Um, and so, yeah, so it's been a long, a long write and, and a long, a long building of her character, but it was, there was so much to say. It was such a big subject. Death is such a big subject. And the other characters in the book, there's such big subjects, time and life and, and how they interplay. There's so much to say about it. Um, but I was very um, strict with myself that the book had to be quite small. So quite a lot of it ended up on the cutting room floor. The hate, I didn't want it to be a massive, great, big, heavy book because I understood that already some of the messages and meanings and, and thoughts and dreams and visions were pretty heavy anyway. So I wanted it to be as short, as as concise as I could make it. Yeah. Yeah, I think you mentioned you wanted it to be as long as a train journey between London and Liverpool. And I, when I first sat down with it, I literally on a Sunday afternoon here, I sat down in a chair and I didn't get up until I finished it. So I think you succeeded wow. in like people being able. That's what I dream. <laughs> Thank you so much for giving me a whole afternoon. Oh my God. That's the dream. That's how I visualize people reading it. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. When I get a bit more courage and when I feel a bit braver, I'll record some of the songs and some of the music that were coming through while I was writing it. Um, I spent quite a lot of time going down to Whitstable to see my friend Peter Coit and we recorded some of those songs and some of that music and some of the lyrics that are in the book. Um, so, yeah, the dream vision was that you would have that in headphones, like a kind of soundtrack while you were reading it. But I, I didn't really have the balls to do that yet. I think it's something I will do one day, though. Wonderful. And in the book you write, I am here. Death is a woman. Surely by erasing me, we have erased this power. By never portraying a woman as the re representative of death, the boss of death, the figure of death itself, one could debate that an important and fundamental disempowerment takes place. Perhaps this is what erasure looks like. Um, we both absolutely love that you have depicted death as a black woman. Why did you make that choice? Why is death both black and a woman? Um, there's lots and lots of answers to this. 
One is that the voice in my head, when I first sort of felt like I was talking to the character in my head, I was walking through Whitechapel. It was Christmas time. And I was feeling very low and and I was walking through Whitechapel. I, I sometimes find Christmas quite depressing, quite melancholy. There's a lot of anniversaries around then, my grandmother and my father. And I'm always skin. <laughs> it's like... And, um, and just sort of walking around and there's this big pressure, jingle bells, jingle bells. It's like, oh. And, um, and, um, and anyway, so I'm walking down through Danbrick Lane to be specific and and I hear this voice, I know a lot of dead people now. I know a lot of dead people now. And so I put that into the story as Wolf's, Wolf's first hearing of Mrs. Death. And now when I look back on it, because um, it, you know, it's been some time since I wrote that chapter and, and I now feel like maybe like that was some kind of ancestor or something. I think my favourite ancestor or known ancestor is this great, my great-great-grandmother, Mama, in Jamaica, and she couldn't read or write, but she knew all the herbs and she was like a medicine woman. She was like a healer. If someone went into labour, she was there when people were dying, when people were sick, she knew... I suppose, like, you know, she just knew, knew all the herbal ways to sort of heal you. And uh, she was an incredibly strong character in my maternal bloodline. And so um, I think there's some of her in there. She smoked a clay pipe and she wore a bandana. Um, and her lineage goes all the way back to the moors where we go, where I took us with the Red Tower and the sort of this, this kind of Spanish, Spain, sort of that those that and and that history and and so I yeah I think I think Mrs Death being this sort of strong black woman medicine woman healer woman very much um is based in her perhaps and then there's the political reasons and and then there's the fact I am a black woman and and I think uh also if I was going to be brutally honest I think this book now I've got a bit of space from it um since writing it is old is is a is I'm in the middle somewhere of it in that I think Wolf is the confused suicidal teenager I once was, and then Mrs. Death, the wise old woman I hope to become, and I'm neither of those things now. So I suppose in some ways it's a conversation, as I was very uh, destructive and and very dark as a teenager, and and uh, and and so I think a lot of that's based on that time in my life and Wolf is also based on these amazing young poets that I know the non-binary poets you know queer poets and their struggles and the conversations I have with them these 19 year old 20 year olds that are struggling with with everything that's going on now and then how I used to I remember how much I struggled at that age too so there's there's some truth in that there's a um, at the back of the book. There's a family tree, and I base some of the characters in that family tree from my family tree to sort of give Wolf that authenticity of sort of a mixed background, and um, and so some of the deaths that Mrs. Death talks about are people in Wolf's family line. Um, so it begs the question: if someone else sat at the desk, which deaths would Mrs. Death show them? Perhaps a very different. Um, you know, a very different thing. But yeah, that's something for me to think about writing about one day. Mm. 
Well, we look forward to it once that comes out. <laughs> and I also just, one reading it, and this is also something I wrote about uh, for my blog, That Good Reading at the time. I think your book comes at such a good time also in like the academic field of deaf studies because a lot of theories around grief and bereavement and death and dying are based on white people and of the middle class white people. So I think it's so important that we like broaden up that scope. And it's also like Beth and I are two white women doing a deaf podcast. But there are so many other voices out there. So I just think it's great that a book like this now exists and also give that permission to other people to think about their stories and write about it. Yeah, I mean, my goodness, I've learned so much since this book's been published. I mean, I've come across your podcast. I've listened and talked to all kinds of people in the death positive community from people that are doing alternative funerals, death doulas, death counsellors, um, people that are making um, weaving coffins. Um, I met someone that, that listened to the book on audiobook whilst weaving a coffin out of willow. And there's something, something in that's just so beautiful to me that my stories weaved into a willow coffin in that way. I didn't know about the death positive community. I didn't know about a lot of this stuff. It's amazing, isn't it? When you write a book, you learn so much. And then when you read a book, you learn so much. But there's this other thing. When other people read your book, they come and tell you things and then you learn even more. And I just love that. That's I love books, but I love this about books, this way of connecting and sharing and learning and growing and talking and um, and yeah, I I would have maybe written a little differently if I'd known and had some of these conversations before I'd written this. But hey, this is just my first book, so moving on, I know loads of other stuff now. And uh, yeah, I don't, I you know, it just fascinates me um, these people that I and these conversations I've had, and people have been so generous and and so open. Um, the last six pages of the book are left blank so that people can write the names of the people they're thinking of or the people that they're grieving or mourning or if anyone remind that the book reminded them of someone and people have uh, emailed me photographs of their last six pages feel very honored humbled in fact to be invited to continue the journey and to see this it's amazing really so, so yeah, this kind of idea of sharing it in this ritual within the pages. Um, and then if you kind of imagine a hundred years in the future, I, I can't even imagine that far ahead. I can't even imagine tomorrow, but imagining a hundred years in the future, there'll be all these first editions of this book with people sharing their names and rituals at the back. And during this time of pandemic, when we have lost so much and, uh, been shown such little grace from our governments and from people in power that could have saved our lives and saved so many people's lives. But also I then imagine the future of your books if they are re-gifted or if people give them to other people or have these lists and maybe add their own names. It's a beautiful, yeah, continuous ritual yeah. that it can be. Well, there's that, um, there's that thing want for better words thing <laughs> that if someone as long as someone says your name you're you're never you're always here so if someone gets a secondhand copy and someone's written a name in the back then they will you know the name that will be spoken out loud and it talks about that doesn't it the rabbit talks about that 
this kind of idea of what, as long as someone says your name out loud, yeah, there's something. Um, someone I did an event recently, and someone came up to me with a copy of the book for to sign it. Um, and then they said, "Will you sign your name in the back?" And I was like, "No, no, no, no! <laughs> Don't ask me to do that. <laughs> I'm very much still here." <laughs> they didn't really understand, but they will do when they get home. <laughs> I'm not putting my own name in the back. I'm not ready to go. <laughs> and Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death is really a great success. And it recently won the Indie Book Award. And also the book rights have been bought by Idris Elba. And he will make it into a film, which will probably give it another life. But you said at the start, when you were writing, you didn't have an agent or anything. So did you imagine it being the success that it is? Oh, no, I didn't. It's terrifying. <laughs> no, I didn't. I was prepared for failure. I was prepared for failure. I was pre prepared for it to bomb. I was prepared for, like, no one. I was terrified that it was being published at, at a time in a pandemic when people wanted happy, happy, clappy Selena, um, you know, jokey, joke around Selena as opposed to you know, emo Selena, which is what I present here. <laughs> like, um, I, I, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have any, any notion or any idea. In my personal life, we were struggling. My partner was really sick, and and we also had a big family bereavement and everything. So it, the whole thing was really tough. The whole thing was really, um, you know, having to do interviews. And talk about death as though it's a theme, and a, and a, and a philosophical thing, as opposed to something we were living through and dealing with in real time. Not being able to have a funeral because of lockdown, and we were actually going through all the things, you know, as everyone else was. And so, yeah, it was it was very tough. It was it was a very strange experience, very raw when it first came out, January twenty twenty one. So it's a little while ago now, um, and I feel a bit more toughened up to it. Oh, that's not true. I am not up enough. I am still terrified. Um, but it's I am I am reminded daily how lucky I am, and people have been really generous and really you know and really taken the work for what it is and what it meant. Um, and the you know it was a difficult a difficult way to do it. There were so many other ways I could have written this book. I could have written the whole book just from Mrs. Death's voice and not bothered with all the other characters. You know, I could have written the book in all these other ways, but this was the way it came with all these different voices, like screaming, all these different kind of ghosts screaming, all these different unheard, you know, um, yeah, sort of screaming voices is how it is in my head. Um, and then changing, um, and, you know, in, in the book there's uh, like different forms, there's poems and dialogue and bits and a bit like script and there's prose and diary and and by doing this I wanted to kind of show what it might be like in Mrs. Death's head when people die it wouldn't be some lovely nice clean clear prose someone might sing someone might be composing a letter someone might be screaming someone might be confessing something like this idea that it wouldn't be this nice neat prose it would be like a barrage, a bit like Twitter, <laughs> like a death Twitter in her head. And she hears all these different endings, you know, 
And then, because you, you've released this book and it's out in the world, but then you're still like so many months later having these conversations, like the conversations we're having right now. And then you are continuously asked to like kind of relive that and rethink those things. So what is that like? It's, a, it's, it's, it's very lovely talking to you today. And I've been looking forward to talking to you. Um, you are the Death Studies podcast. If I should talk to anyone, it should be you guys, right? So I'm in the right place. <laughs> um, it, I'm, I, yeah, I'm interested and curious and I'm learning and I'm growing and I'm interested to see how people are responding and, and what's changing and, and, you know, yeah. And just, it's, it's, it's interesting to me. I mean, some people, I mean, I'm not, I'm not duvet or blanketed. I can see some people don't like the book. You know, some people aren't ready for that conversation or some people don't want to talk about death or some people, um, one person's very angry with me on the internet because I'm not more like Tolkien. I can't be more like Tolkien. <laughs> I'm Selena Gordon. I'm a work in progress. Even I'm not even finished doing what I'm doing yet. And then someone else was cross because my book reminded them of James Joyce. I mean, that's very flattering, but don't be cross with me about it. They said they I hated James Joyce's school. This reminds me of James Joyce, which is actually a really lovely compliment. And James Joyce is amazing, but um, I can't, you know, so and there's this strange thing. You can't go back in time and edit it to be the book that everyone else wanted it to be. And in the book, I'm very much trying to write as the poetry and the writing. I'm being the voice of Wolf, a 19-year-old non-binary kind of angry teenager you know you know and and it's it's not you know and so yeah anyway I can't go back and change it but I will just keep marching forward to make new work hey you can't please everyone but that's uh that is a thing yeah and um as you've said death does not just feature in your literary literary work but it's also a big theme in your personal life and in 2014 you crowdfunded and wrote the memoir springfield road and i've tried to get a copy in finland and it's absolutely impossible but i will keep going uh, and in which you talk about your father's suicide uh, when you were nine and so we were wondering what prompted you to write this memoir um at that stage in your life Okay, so this is this is going back some now. So I'm 50 now, but Springfield Road was written back in my 30s. It took a whole decade. So actually, when you think about it, all my books take 10 years. So Springfield Road took my 30s and Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death, my 40s. So my whole 40s and my whole 30 on these two big books. Um, and so Springfield Road was a real reach and really a really hard thing to write. I was approached by an agent back then to have a go at writing it um and and it was yeah it was a tough thing to write um but I'm glad I did it um that book is out of print now but it's going to be republished soon 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 so watch this space um so I'm looking forward to that and I'm looking forward it's it's a strange book for me now because I can feel I feel 20 years older you know and I can see the sort of youth of my you know I it's like a letter to my, it's a letter to my younger self. I'm older now reading a letter to my younger self. There's some sort of chain going on there. Um, but yeah, so that, that was a, that was a big thing to write and it was very difficult to get right. And it was very difficult to place. Um, 
and it was a very bumpy road getting it published and in the end I did crowdfund it it was a very bumpy road it's a very tricky thing back in that time there was a real trend for misery memoirs and um I don't write like that my uh, my work is full of hope and seeking hope and as you you know that's the kind of creature I am and so that was really hard to hold on to to write about something or so tragic and big and and to write about the 70s when, when I grew up and the darkness and the strange decade that that was and Margaret Thatcher and punk and all of that and being a, a kid with an afro when in that time you know with a you know, the single mum and all this kind of stuff, but to not make that a misery memoir, to make that a story of, of hope. And it wasn't very fashionable then, but I think we might have a better chance with it in this decade, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll send you a copy personally. I can see that's making Edgar very happy. <laughs> We're very interested in memoir, so it's going to be great to, to discuss that. And it's so wonderful to listen to you. And I teach a lot of English literature and creative writing. So, one of the things that I just love that you said is is about how your writing functions as a kind of dialogue between the different yous. And that would make a great essay, I think, for students to think about the different yous that come out in your writing and in theirs. And I know one of the things I've noticed sometimes working in academia is like sometimes academics think that it's maybe easier to be, oh, I wish I could just be a novelist. It would be an easier thing to do. So I'll direct them to this podcast and say no no it takes just as long if not longer to write a novel than it does to take to write a doctoral thesis or anything else um, and you get just as much upsetting peer review except that it's maybe not as anonymous <laughs> all of those things that are perceived to be better probably aren't but I think um I think it's because because I've never done I have never done anything else with my life like I really haven't I, all my life, all I've done is writing, writing poems and stories and little plays and making radio radio shows and um, and songs and music and writing and stories and books and novels and attempts at novels. That's all I've ever done, and I never throw anything out. So all the poetry, and I was doing my first gigs when I was 19, well, 19, 20, around that age is when I first started doing poetry gigs. And so I can look at these old poems and they're like, you really thought that you know you can kind of they're like a record and narration of who you are and you see how you grow and um but it also means you can do a karaoke of yourself you know I sometimes I can sit down to write and go you are trying to sound like Selena Godden will you just get on with some writing and stop trying to sound like how you think you sound you know <laughs> so um yeah I mean it's all I've ever wanted to do it's all I've you know all I've ever done i mean even at school i was uh, swapping cigarettes uh swapping poems for cigarettes and things like that and i used to um, hang out down the music block and get the girls down there that to help me put music to my poems and, and things like spend lunch breaks doing that I, th I don't think i've i've changed at all in that respect um i think people that have known me that long will vouch for that you know and kind of making people laugh around the back of the bike sheds making up dirty poems about the teachers and you know what I mean it's kind of uh kind of how I've always been um writing is is my thing so the performance side of it was just what I learned to do to pay the rent or the performance side of it is what I found I was accepted to do um 
like I was very much warmly brought into the performance circle and, and doing gigs was a way to make money, was a way to share my poetry, and it was an open door, whereas publishing was a really closed door and seemed very elite and something very difficult to break into. So working with musicians and putting out music and trying to get record deals was more... So in my early years, in my early 20s, I thought I was going to be a pop star, you know, like Nana Cherry or like, uh, you know, X-Ray Specs or something like, kind of, you know, just sort of something cool like that. But um, and so I did put out some albums and do quite a lot of music. My formative, like in my 20s, a lot of touring, a lot of music with my band, Salt Peter, and then also, you know, doing vocals with Ninja Tune, with Cold Cut, um, and all kinds of collaborations and tours and things like that. So my formative early years was very much that using performance to say what I wanted to say. And I used to just print and make my own zines, DIY, and then just swap those for beers and swap those for, for well, swap those with other people for their books and things. But getting a publishing deal was really hard. I wasn't published until I was 40. So it was a long, so 19 to 40, that's a lot of rejections and a, a lot of try, try, try again. Um, and But yeah, we got there in the end, hey. Hello. I want to read a memoir about, about this. You need to do another memoir and call it Zines, Zines for Beers. I know, I know, I really should. I really should do the, the 90s, the 1990s as a memoir. Um, I wonder. I'm. I'm waiting to just get a little bit older. I think because at the moment I still feel, I feel it will still feel quite close to that time and that year. Those years, they could. I mean, it's kind of a, a wilderness. But I think the wilderness gave me metal. It gave me this other strength. It gave me this other power. If I'd been given everything I wanted when I wanted it when I was 25, I probably wouldn't be here now. I probably would have just gone, I'm <laughs> flying off into some craziness. Or something I don't know, but yeah, I think uh, I think those years in the wilderness and that having to prove that I wanted what I wanted to be clear about what I was asking for and what I wanted to do with my writing and and you know this passion for it. I think I think uh, when people talk about success, I think my greatest success is I have as much passion and love for books and writing as I did when I started out. That's hard work to hold on to. Like I haven't got at all cynical or or entitled. People talk a lot about um, imposter syndrome. I have massive imposter syndrome, but I'd rather have that than the opposite of imposter syndrome. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm glad I've still got imposter syndrome. So if I didn't have it, I'd have the other thing where I'd be like, hey, I own this town. <laughs> and that's not very nice. <laughs> Wonderful. I love your idea of like having distance between writing memoir and stuff. So I do feel sometimes we live in a culture that's very much kind of pushing people to write about their experiences right now as they're in them, as they're happening. And as you say, that mm. can feel quite different. But you do write all the time and keep notes on things. So I suppose you have that for you and you write it for you, but then that's not necessarily published until it's in like a later form. Yeah, yeah. I've got boxes and boxes and boxes of notebooks. And um and yeah, piles and piles. I never throw anything out. I've never I've got boxes of beer mats where I used to hang out in pubs a lot more than I do now. But you know, I've still got boxes of beer mats and menus that I've written on and you know, the original kind of, you know, sick bag on a plane because I've got no paper and things like that. I've just yeah, I've got I've got it all. I I've hardly thrown anything out in that respect. Um 
you never know what what you can use later um and yeah these these things that they're they're precious i think they're like record like if you were going up a mountain into a snowy snowy mountain you kind of put these flags in as you go up and they're kind of like markers so you can find your back way back down or something i don't know yeah that's what i'm visualizing while i'm talking to you <laughs> icy icy mountain <laughs> now you spoke a little bit earlier about how you've always had quite positive perception to your performance and that your ability to perform your poetry has always kind of been maybe a bit bread and butter when you weren't able to get it published just yet and i wonder how important that's been in terms of talking about death and dying because in death studies there's a lot of talk around like well is death is talking about death and dying taboo do people want to do it or not you know a lot of stuff starts with this kind of no one talks about death um idea well actually lots of people have quite a positive perception as as you've talked about having in, a, in other interviews you've talked about sort of people being really open to you talking about mrs death when you performed it and I just wondered how you feel that that poetry is maybe a kind of route into that, or or if it's more about you and people's reception response to you, and um, when you've sort of given talks or when you've been speaking, performing, and it's been, I think you called it earlier, like not real death, but death as a theme. Um, how how have yeah. people responded to that? Has it been quite positive or quite cagey? Um. Wow. That's. Let me have a think. What I'm thinking of when you were asking me that question is is di the different responses I've got when I've done readings and gigs. As when I was writing Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death, before it was a book, before I had a publishing deal, before it was a thing, when it was just a whole bunch of notes and notebooks and and trying to and um, and just working on it, um, I did try out um, bits of Mrs. Death, um, slotting them into my poetry set to see how that would feel. And that's when I started coming up with this idea of that there might be a geography of grief, um, this idea that not just the culturally, like globally, um, that, but from county to county or town to town. Um, I felt very much when I, when I shared this, the, the memory that's coming to my mind is uh, sharing um, some Mrs. Death early stages, early drafts in Edinburgh up in Scotland around the time when Prince died. Um, in 2016, and everyone being this, the, the the room felt like a very lively wake, like very raw. And then that same week, I read exactly the same piece again, slotted it into a poetry gig at the Bloomsbury Theatre in in um, in London, and um, and yeah, everyone was crying, which made me start crying, and we all had a big hug, and everyone was like, "What was that?" And I was like, "I it was very emotional, very beautiful." Now, what was the difference? Because they were two exactly the same sort of gigs, raucous poetry gigs, lively gigs, and, uh, you know, in the same. So I, I started to wonder if they, if we just have a different capacity for how we talk about it, a different capacity for what we want to talk about. Also, I think that death's very personal, and sometimes some people don't want their death trampled on by other people's words and other people's emotions about it and other people's what they think you should be feeling or shouldn't be feeling. Um, like sometimes you don't want, you know, you, I remember, you know, specifically when my father died that I went very silent and I didn't want to speak in case some words would somehow 
dilute it, dissolve it. I, I can't find the right phrasing there, but something to do with words and the power of words. And it's very hard to know what to say or perhaps what not to say. Um, and even if people are being kind, um, it can sometimes feel like you're being trampled on by you know their interpretation of what you should or shouldn't be feeling. It's very it's very complicated death. When it's someone you've loved, it's so very painful. When it's someone who's betrayed you or let you down or hurt you, and it's a, it's also very complicated. You still grieve, but it's a very different kind of no. It's it's still grieving, but but you can't. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's so complicated when someone's been unkind to you or a bad person, or a, then then the grieving language. Is, is again very different it's all so personal and there's so many different 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 sort of stages in 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 that grieving in the sense that you go from this sort of anger sometimes feel angry or you feel betrayed or you feel you know um like you've been left um abandoned that abandonment thing is a big thing um and then there's the whole it's not fair thing and that anger thing as well as the the feeling of loss and and it's just, yeah, just finding the words to describe some of that. I've sort of, I feel like um, grief and mourning comes in waves. And sometimes it's just like a gentle sort of hit. And then other times you'll think you're totally fine and you just get hit with this tsunami. It's, it'll just be the smell of a, I don't know, a chicken roasting or it'll be a certain song on the radio or it'll be a certain light in the sky or a certain date and and that's it you're back at day one again and it's it's there's there's to describe that and put that into words and to not hurt, not feel like you know to be gentle with it and honest with it it's 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 huge it's really huge well that was a bit of a rat sorry <laughs> there's a lot resonated there with me i'm sure we'll say my right to go from her by nodding yeah now we love your poetry and there's yeah read so many of your wonderful poems and great and I, I was struck by what you said earlier about how yeah a lot of Christmases you were broke it's not like a lot of money in poetry sometimes in no. <laughs> but can you tell us a bit about what draws you to poetry as a whole I that's such a okay so what draws me to poetry specifically I have always written poetry I've always written poetry and songs and lyrics and phrases I think I always have. Maybe it's the rhythm, maybe it's the the patterns, maybe it's the 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 form and and saying something in as few words as possible, or succinctly and beautifully. Um, I I I cannot think of a time when I wasn't writing poetry. Like I've got my old notebooks from sort of being sort of ten, eleven years old, and and writing these little things. And um, when I moved to London, um, when I was, yeah, about 18, 19, I met a poet called Jock Scott. And Jock Scott was amazing. He was this incredible Scottish poet. And he sort of took me under his wing, got me very drunk, introduced me to Bukowski and all kinds of poetry books and gave me lots of books, introduced me to the amazing work of Ian Dury and the Blockheads and, and uh, Shane McGowan and the Pogues. And it was a very exciting time in London and, Irvin Welsh and all this really cool stuff was going on and um and yeah and he was the one that first got me on stage 
I said to him, I interviewed him for um, a magazine. I used to do a column called Unsung Heroes. And so he was one of the first people I interviewed. And, uh, and so we started hanging out and became friends after that. And I said to him in confidence, in secret, that I wrote these, uh, I wrote these poem song things. And I said, I had a, I had a pile of songs that were this high and they were, they I'd written finished because they had tunes and melodies and made sense in a chorus verse, chorus verse structure. And then I had a pile twice as high that were unfinished written underneath them because they didn't make sense in that song structure of a chorus verse, chorus verse. And he said, had it ever occurred to you that they're poems, that, that you're writing poems? And I was like, no, no. And I thought, I thought I was, they were just these unfinished songs. And that, that night he pulled me on stage and I did my first gig and, and did these things which I felt were terrible, unfinished songs. And, and it was, I remember being really embarrassed and apologising that they didn't have a tune. And uh, yeah, um, and that's, that's, that was my first gig. And the poem, the poem was Saliva Gloopy, one of my poems in those days. And my name in those days was Selena Saliva. Uh, Selena, my full stage name was Selena Saliva Gloopy Godiva, God bless Goddess Godden. Um, but of course, no one remembered the rest and the Selena Saliva bit stuck. It took me decades to get people to stop calling me Selena Saliva and to call me Selena Godden. I even had to go through a phase where I had Selena Saliva Godden, like a three-name thing, just sort of then I had to slowly erase the saliva bit. But yeah, Jock Scott um, was was my guide and sort of showed showed me that poetry wasn't this thing in stuffy books on shelves by dead old white men. Um, that that it could that it was something that even I could do. But I did I did admire you know Maya Angelou very much and and the books of Alice Walker and. And these, the you know, I had, I was reading extensively, but I didn't realise it was something that I could do as well. You know, it felt something far away. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you. And now we do always ask guests on the podcast for some advice, and that might be a nice time to ask you now, as you've just given us some great um, guidance there whilst you've been talking about someone who's mentored you. So we just wondered if there's someone out there who sort of might perceive themselves as a burgeoning writer and I won't say poet because as you said you didn't necessarily see yourself as a poet and then someone else sort of showed you that as something you that yeah you, you could be and that's made such a wonderful difference to the people who've read your work so if there's anything you'd like to offer as a kind of bit of advice for our listeners we'd really appreciate that okay my wise wise advice is don't listen to advice <laughs> listen to yourself listen to your gut instincts only you can write the way you're going to write only you can tell your story the way you're going to tell it there's this fantastic essay by Laurie Lee where he describes um that you know he has seven brothers and sisters and it would be a Christmas morning but if they had each written it it'd be a very different Christmas because one was in love one was in trouble one was hungry one had a shiny new bike so they would be in the same room, the same Christmas morning, but from seven different perspectives. And so it is with life. We, we're all seeing the same apocalypse, <laughs> but from a very different perspective. Um, and it's really important to get as many stories and as many of the different, different perspectives out there. I think it's really important. Otherwise, we only hear from the great white shark and we need more colourful fish, more, all the fish, all the sea life, all their versions of what's going on in this ocean of life. But I think um, I think that's my first massive bit of advice is know your own value 
and how important every voice and story is. And then my second bit of advice, um, which I always say is um, from my mother, my mother always taught me this, go where the love is. You won't be loved by everyone. You won't fit everywhere. You won't be a fit for everyone. You won't be everyone's cup of tea. I really hate that saying, by the way, cup of tea. Not even tea is everyone's cup of tea. You won't. So just go where the love is and you'll feel it. You'll know the rooms where, you know, you're where it makes sense and the, the stages where it makes sense and the magazines, publishers, radio shows, podcasts like this one where it's happy and it feels good and you feel like you're in the right room and in the right conversation. Um, I'm not saying it's not fun to elbow your way into the wrong conversations too. That's what Twitter's all about. <laughs> but but, but um, I, I, really, I really want you to take away that. Go where the love is. It honestly, it's held me in such good stead, and it's really kept me, um, kept me stronger. You know, because you, you know, it's it's brutal out there trying to be a writer, um, you know, and and being rejected for things and thrown around like a rag doll. Um, so, but you'll find you'll find a place, you'll find your tribe, you'll find your people, and uh, and then you'll all laugh about it. You know, in the pub later. Go where the love is. So much. That's such a lovely message. Mrs. Death's Diaries. The first morning of the first morning. Present day. When I called for change, did you pass me by? Did you see me today? I sit on a bench outside London's King's Cross station. I like train stations and airports best. I like to sit in places where people come and go. I sit and watch you come and go. You say goodbye and hello. Come and go. Goodbye and hello. It's as though you are not connected to each other. Goodbye, you say, clinging on to that last glance. You give a funny little wave. You don't know that you don't have to touch to touch, to see, to feel each other. Human beings were designed to be in contact without being in contact, to communicate without words to call each other to each other's minds. Humans still have so much to learn about connection. But when you are in transition, and whilst travelling, you are tuned into this. You are alive and alert. When you travel, you wake up. You're awake and aware of changes, differences and sameness, strangers and each other. In transit, you are occupied by time and space, by clocks and miles by separation and reunion, your chance and your fate. Humans were built to travel. Humans were made to move, to share and to migrate, just like butterflies and birds. The history and the geography of human migration is nothing less than phenomenal. The greatest trick man played was making you believe I was a man. They erased me and made you all believe that death was male in spirit the grim reaper in a black hood with a sigh. Remarkable that nobody questioned it, really, don't you think? For surely only she who bears it, she who gave you life, can be she who has the power to take it. The one is she, and only she who is invisible can do the work of death, and there is no human more invisible, more readily talked over, ignored, betrayed, and easy to walk past than a woman, than a poor old black woman. A homeless black beggar woman, 
with naughty, nutty hair, broken back, walking ever so slow, 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 pushing a shopping trolley full of plastic bottles. Death is plastic. Plastic is death. I think Beth and I both had the same response after recording and listening back to this episode, uh, which was the phrase, I absolutely love her. <laughs> I think we've both confessed that we are a little bit in love with Selena Godden after talking to her, also after reading her work. There is something about her and the way she presents herself that I, I think, yeah, this is good energy that she brings into the world. Completely. I am head over heels with no doubt. <laughs> very willing to admit my complete adoration it's just great to talk to her it's great to be in her presence and talk about death loss grief life feelings it was wonderful i really enjoyed having such honest discussion about the geographies of grief about feelings about feeling sad about feeling achievement about feeling positivity i just felt we got a real sense of the breadth of of human experience and the role of writing in that both for the writer and for the reader. I agree and I, I really also appreciated her talking about how she spent her 30s trying to grasp grapple with the memoir she was writing and then her 40s with Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death and that it just takes time to write a book and that it's okay to take time and yeah let's the work just live in your head for a long time because I feel at least in academia we're so encouraged to just publish publish get it out there and I am personally a huge favor of slow academia and just yeah slow writing slow thinking just take our time it was also at like the start of the pandemic the amount of stuff that instantly came out reflecting on it I'm like no 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 we're still reliving it let's all take a moment, take a breath, think it through before we throw out all these ideas of what it is we're supposed to be feeling or are feeling. So yeah, slow writing, I'm all for it. And I like the unpredictability of what will then be met and received well and how that can also bring other things back. So for example, not knowing that this was going to be such a wonderful success or all so well received by so many different people from different backgrounds, win so many awards, do so well. And that that has then in turn led to these other exciting new projects, turning it into a film, but also hopefully the republishing of Selena's memoir, earlier memoir, Springfield Road. So it's it's really exciting to to see how sometimes we just don't know what's going to be the thing that brings us certain successes. And, and it's lovely when it's also the same thing that has been so personally rewarding. And, and I think hopefully those overlaps do often exist is what's been really valuable for us might also be valuable for others. I, I really appreciated Selena's reflection on the idea of writing as a dialogue between different versions of yourself, but also as books as a way of learning all the way through the process. So not just for you as writer and for the reader, but also then back to you as writer so that as you're having people read and receive your work, that they can then tell you things you're still learning then from the people who it and wanting to, to develop it and write more it's it's a really really lovely sort of process when I first took an interest someone asked me once like what gave you your first interest in death studies and I think for me it was I was in the second year of my undergraduate degree at Cardiff University and I had this absolutely wonderful lecturer 
Faye Hamill. Shout out to Faye Hamill. She was amazing. And it still is, I'm sure, working, I think, in, in Scotland. And set a assignment. She used to set like a load of essay questions. You could pick whatever you wanted to write about. And one of them was to write about the presence of the dead in Michael Ondaatje's In the Skin of a Lion. And I loved the book and I really engaged with the question. And I just really was... Fa- and that just, that was it. One of the key sort of sparks really for writing about the place of, of death and the dead in literature. And I just found it so engaging. So it's wonderful to come to novels again that that are written with these strong themes of, of loss and death and grief. And it's wonderful to see how incredibly rich literature is as a, as a way for thinking through and experiencing all those feelings that are there around grief, death and loss. I think also, as, as you said it more eloquently before, but I think a lot of empirical stories and how we cope with grief and bereavement are in books, are in novels, are are in memoirs, because that's the place where people feel they can more freely write about it and get their stories out. Yeah, and there's a lot of interesting stuff in academia now, isn't there, around that balance between the creative work and the academic work and where they sit together and our episode with with Professor Gail Leatherby has some really interesting reflections on the opportunities for blending fiction with an autobiography with the more sort of traditionally academic. I don't want to say like academic as if that writing stuff isn't academic because it, you know, it can be and finding those places. And I think it's really interesting to see how Selena's novel has taken on a life of its own within sort of death studies in terms of being reviewed in your book blog of people having a real interest in it who are death doers, people who are involved in death in in practice and research in in different ways as well as of course having this broad appeal that has has led to its popularity and I'm sure is is in part because of her wonderful success as a as a poet more broadly as well and as you know she's often described as Britain's best loved poet and and you can see why and I I really like that reflection (laughs) happy clappy Selena who who I went to the People's History Museum in Manchester and saw the copy of her poem Pessimism is for Lightweights there and I'm just yeah a huge fan of her work and I think that it's interesting to see then when a, a book comes out how many different audiences come to it in different ways I don't think you tend to get that so much in academia where of course things might be behind a paywall or things might be mm-hmm. simply um, not as accessible. Yeah, and I think also with this book, because for me, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death was my introduction to Selena Garden, but there will be people who like know already all of her poetry, like like you, and there's a whole new audience. And then if when this movie is coming out, there will be another group of people introduced to all these ideas and all these images. So yeah, I think people will really love this episode and we would love to hear on either Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or via email what you thought of this episode and also we really hope you all have a very lovely Christmas and New Year and as always I'll say just be kind to yourself and have a nice glass of something to soothe you. Can I read you my favourite Selena Godden poem? Of course you can. Okay, everyone get your drink. <laughs> Apologies for my, it being me reading it and not Selena, but this is my favourite poem by Selena Godden. It's called Blackbird. I start writing at 4am 
when bony branches tap against the starlight. I'm listening to one January bird singing a hungry, cold dawn song. And it's then I think, I love you, you, there in the bed as you turn softly to feel me go. Shush, I say, go back to sleep. I leave your warmth to shiver at my desk and write this poem about now and January and the blackbird and the tapping of branches against first light. I'm capturing this hour in my teacup. I write, I love him because when I ask for his advice, he never suggests the easy or cheap route, the fast or smooth path. Always it's the big thing to do. He says, look for the big thing to do, and it's often difficult, but he's often right. It's 7am when I put down my pen and slide back into bed. I hold him close and feel him stir and rise. There he is, and there we are. It's the start of the day, the beginning of a new year, and love is the big thing to do. It's gorgeous. Beautiful, isn't it? Well, we wish you all a very happy new year and some peace in this cold December. Unless you're somewhere hot. (laughs) Get on the beach. Thank you for listening to the Deaf Studies podcast. You can find out more about our guests and their work in the show notes or on our website, thedeafstudypodcast.com. If you enjoyed listening to us, please leave us a comment. Follow us on social media at the Deaf Podcast. And of course, spread the word.